Well, as we return today to our study of the life of Jesus, we come to John's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And with it, I think, to at least one of the questions that I kind of feel like, you know, if we were really honest and had the opportunity to raise our hand in heaven and say, hey, you know, um, as I gaze upon the cross, here's my question. I think one of our questions would be, was this really necessary? And let me explain why I think that's the case. Uh, Because the cross is brutal. The cross is is mind-numbingly horrific. It is gruesome. It is awful. And honestly, there's something in us as we gaze upon it, and that's the call today, that kind of recoils. You know, Ryan read it to us from Isaiah 53, and it says, He was as one from whom men turn their faces. You want to turn your face from what you're seeing when what you're seeing is Christ on the cross because it's just tough. And you want to cry out, good grief, really? Was this really necessary? And the answer to that, of course, is yes and no. I mean, it kind of depends on how you look at it. No is the answer if you just think about it from the, from the standpoint of the fact that, you know, God doesn't need us. He's never needed us. He doesn't need us now. He will never need us in the future. There was no sort of vacuum or deficiency in God that he was seeking to fill by creating humanity and then out of humanity choosing a people to set his love upon for himself. So in that sense, no, he did not need to devise a way by which to rescue us from the, important word, horror of our sin. Not necessary in that regard. However, since God, for reasons known only to him and to further his glory, has chosen a people out of humanity upon whom to set his great love, oh, well, then he did need to devise a way to rescue us from the horror of our sin and... The cross is that way. It was absolutely necessary. Matthew tells us that on the night before the crucifixion that we're going to look at today, so Thursday night, we celebrated as Maundy Thursday during the Easter season, as Jesus awaited in the Garden of Gethsemane the coming of Judas and the soldiers. They're going to come get him. He kneels and he prays. And what does he say? He says, Father, if it be possible. Do you hear that language? If it be possible, then please, please, let this cup of suffering and of crucifixion pass from me. Now, did it pass from him? The answer is most emphatically no. He drank it, as we'll see today, every single drop. So then what's the logical conclusion? It wasn't possible. There was one way to get the job done, and this is it. On the morning of his resurrection, Luke tells us that that Jesus joins two of his disciples. Now, they don't know that it's him yet, and he walks with them from Jerusalem all the way to Emmaus, talking all about the horrors, frankly, of his own crucifixion. And somewhere in the conversation, he says, guys, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Now, I understand he's saying, was it not necessary? Because all of the Old Testament is saying it was necessary, and he had to fulfill all of those scriptures. But why Did all of the Old Testament make it necessary if indeed it wasn't necessary? The cross of Jesus Christ, which is admittedly very difficult to look at, is what God in love endured and had to endure 
to rescue us from the horror of our sin, which, if you think about it, makes the cross of Jesus Christ both the single greatest demonstration of the passionate love of God for you, his child, and then also the single greatest demonstration of his passionate hatred for my sin and for yours. So here's the bottom line today. I want you to gaze at the cross of Christ with me. I don't want you to turn your face from what you see, but absorb it and take it in because gazing upon the cross of Christ should then move you and it should move me toward a greater love for this God because my goodness, look at what he did for us. And it should move us toward a greater hate for our sin because my goodness, look at what it did to him to say nothing of what it continues to do to us today. We pick up our study today in John chapter 19, beginning of verse 16, where John says this, he says, So Pilate delivered Jesus, who by now, if you've been following along in the study, has been arrested by the Jewish religious leaders. He's been tried before them falsely. He's been convicted by them. All of this on the previous evening, working no doubt late into the night, and then early on the morning of this crucifixion, they come bringing him to Pilate, and they coerce Pilate, they manipulate Pilate, politically, to get Pilate to sign off on his crucifixion. Okay, so Pilate then delivered Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. And then John says, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, which interestingly enough is like all of the details about the process of crucifixion that John gives us. And the other gospel writers really don't give us much more than that either. It's fascinating. I think one of the reasons that they don't go into graphic detail about what it is that Jesus endured is because at least their original audience there in the first century already knew. They crucified him. Oh, yeah, like they did my cousin Bill, my Uncle Joe, my dad, hundreds of other people. Crucifixion was not something that needed to be explained to these guys for them to get the point. They got the point. They saw the point repeatedly. It was very common back then. Thankfully, not so common today. But I want you to see the point, like when you look at the Lord. So here's the deal. When they condemned you to crucifixion, the first thing they did was that they scourged you, which practically speaking means that a group of soldiers, in this case, as we'll see, four, four executioners, would take you and they would strip you of your clothing. And I don't mean down to your underwear, I mean all of it, gone. The injury is not just to your body, the injury is to your modesty as well. It is an utterly and intentionally so humiliating experience in which you are degraded in every sense. So they strip you of your clothing, and then they tie you, hands up high, so your arms can't deflect the blows, to a pole. And then your four professional executioners, who no doubt took great glee and joy in doing these kinds of things, took these whips with many tails, let's say three to five. And in the tails of the whips were embedded little pieces of glass and and metal and bone and other sharp objects so that when they, again, your hands are up in the air, whipped you, it would stick into you, and then they would grab it and yank it out. And they would just take turns 
One guy, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. New rotation. One guy, and then the next, and then the next, and then the next. Until they literally just got too tired to do this anymore. Leaving you a shredded, bleeding, semi-conscious, if conscious at all, mess. And as we saw last week, Jesus endured that in love. In love. For our sin, but he also endured the crown of thorns. He also endured the repeated beatings of the Roman soldiers. So the first thing they did when they condemned you to die by means of crucifixion is they scourged you. And they did that, by the way, not just to torture and humiliate you, but they did it to speed up your death. Because if you think about crucifixion itself, it really doesn't impact any of your vital organs, and it's not very bloody, to be perfectly frank. So people who are crucified and not scourged would last. I mean, they would live on, like for days they would live on. And they wanted to kind of speed up the process a little bit. So they would scourge you to weaken you almost to death. And that would speed it up. And after they scourged you, they would take the heavy wooden cross beam of the cross, not the whole cross, but the horizontal beam. And they would lay that upon your shredded, bleeding shoulders. And you then would walk naked through the city, carrying this down the streets. You'd walk out one of the gates of the city, because they like to crucify you by the gates of the city, outside of the gates, a very public spot on purpose. Where generally speaking, the vertical beam of the cross was already standing firmly affixed in the ground. And then once you arrived there, they would lay you down on the ground on top of that horizontal beam that you've carried. And they would take six or eight inch iron spikes And they would drive them, in all likelihood, not through your hands, because this has to support your body weight, but through your wrists. Having then driven them through your wrists, they would, the soldiers on either side of the horizontal beam, kind of jack you up onto your feet, and then they would lift the beam with you hanging on it, onto the vertical beam, and then they would collect your feet, and either drive one stake through both feet with one over the top into the horizontal or into the vertical beam of the cross, or they would take your feet and drive nails through your heels on either side of that vertical beam. And then sometimes they would give you a little seat. And you think about that and you think, well, that's helpful, a little seat. I can sit down, take a rest. Sounds merciful, doesn't it? It's not given to you in mercy. The little seat would help you last longer. It would prolong the agony that in truth you really want sped up. Because when you're crucified, you die of asphyxiation. That is to say, you suffocate to death. Because as you hang on the cross... It does something to your rib cage that makes it very difficult for you to breathe. It pulls it up and it pulls it out. And what happens is it's hard then to exhale. So if you're going to get anything more than a very shallow breath, you've got to push off on the nails in your feet and pull up on the nails in your wrists, thus dragging your scourged back up and down on the rough wooden vertical part of the cross so that you can exhale and get a breath and then go back down. If you have a little seat... Well, it helps. 
John says, Pilate delivered Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified, and so they took Jesus, who had already been scourged, who had already been given a crown of thorns, who had already been beaten beyond recognition by the Roman soldiers, and he went out bearing that horizontal beam of his cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there, John says, they nailed him to that horizontal beam. They hoisted him up, one, two, three, onto the vertical part. They collected his feet and nailed them to the wood as well. And for hours, he would push off with his feet and pull up with his wrists and drag his back up and down that wood, struggling to breathe. And frankly, the physical agony that Jesus Christ endured on the cross is by far the least of what He endured. It's hard to believe. Far greater was the anguish of bearing all of the guilt and all of the shame and all of the stain and all of the filth of all of His people for all time. He took all of that in, guys to His perfectly righteous soul. The one who is forever pure on that cross became, if you will, impure. The one who is forever clean took into Himself all of our filth. The one who is forever holy on that cross in those hours bore not just some of our unholiness, But all of it, the one who is sinless, to use the language of Paul, himself became sin. The one who is the light of the world absorbed into his soul all of our darkness. And that was far, far more painful than the physical agonies. I think greater still was the pain of abandonment that Jesus felt on the cross. My God... My God, why have you, what, forsaken me? The Father with whom he had for all of eternity enjoyed a perfect relationship. Perfect. The Father who had walked with him through every moment of these 30-plus years in which he had clothed himself with our flesh and come into our humanity to do this, among other things, and had been his constant source of strength, his constant source of companionship, the only one who got and understood him, his source of power, his source of joy in this moment, because he is of pure eyes, even to look upon iniquity, the Scripture says, looked away. Oh, that's a much greater agony than the cross. That's a much bigger deal than the nails and suffocation. And then I think even greater still than that, Jesus Christ absorbed in the cross, in His person, the full weight of the fury of God, the intensity of His hatred for our sin, and all of His vengeance. Thinking that was a big deal. Bigger than nails. Bigger than scourging bigger than any of those things. Guys, the cross of Jesus Christ, which I'm asking you to behold, 
is, again, the single greatest demonstration of the love of God for us. Like, that's something we doubt, isn't it? Particularly when times get tough. Look at the cross. And it is, at the same time, the single greatest demonstration of the hatred of our sin. And that this is what it took to defeat it. And that's something we doubt, too. Not that this is what it took to defeat it so much, but we just marvel that it's that big of a deal because it isn't to us. And the cross stands as a corrective. And what it does is that it comes along and says, okay, I'm calling you to love God because this is his great love for you. Look at what he did. And I'm calling you to hate your sin, to stop loving it in light of your love for him. Because look at what it did to him. This is what it did. And then ask yourself, what does it do to you? So John says, Pilate delivered Jesus over to his soldiers to be crucified. And then he said, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there's some thoughts on this. You know, so one of the theories on this is that there was this giant rock structure that looked like a skull and everybody kind of went, oh, that looks like a skull. Therefore, that is the place of the skull. You can go to Jerusalem today and there is a place called Gordon's Calvary. I don't think that that's where the crucifixion and burial took place, but I do love that particular site, quite frankly. And there is a rock formation that looks like the place of a skull. Another theory on this is that when David defeated Goliath, if you'll recall, he chopped off Goliath's head with his own sword and he took the head of Goliath of Gath. Now, you can hear that even in the English. And he took it to Jerusalem where we're told he buried it. Goliath of Gath, Golgotha. It even sounds familiar, the place of the skull. That's possible. We don't know, and honestly, I don't think it matters. They took him to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, and there they crucified him, and with him now, two others. What did Isaiah tell us? He was numbered with the transgressors. By the way, he said that 750 years before Jesus was born. They crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. And Pilate also wrote an inscription. And he put it on the cross, which, by the way, was also a very common practice in those days. So it was typical of the Romans to take kind of a placard, if you will, and then to write on that what it is that this person who is walking through the city, shredded and bleeding, carrying their crossbeam, heading to the site of the crucifixion, was convicted of. Get the idea? And what they would do oftentimes is they would literally hang it around your neck. They would either have, either have somebody walk in front of you holding it on a pole, or more commonly, they would just put it on your neck. And so as you carried your horizontal beam, if you will, of the cross, you're walking through the city in the nude, shredded and and bleeding, and you've got this thing around your neck, which is telling everyone who's looking at you if they can stand to do it, at least allegedly, what you've done. And then when you arrived where you would be crucified again, having been nailed to the horizontal beam and hoisted up onto the vertical beam and having had your feet nailed in as well, they would take that off your neck and nail it above your head. And as I got to this part of the story this week, I thought to myself, what would my placard say? 
What would yours say? You know, I mean, the truth is it could say a lot of different things. All of us, all of us, sorry if this is like new information to you, but we're all of us guilty of millions of different kinds of sin, and we're quite creative in the way that we do it. So we'd need a pretty big placard, I guess, but I also think that most of us at least are characterized by one or two. Like there's sort of one that plagues us more than anything else. There's one that sort of rises to the top, if you will. What would yours be? I think for a lot of us, and the statistics bear this out, male and female, it would say pornography right across the top. Some it would say adultery. Some it would say unforgiving, bitter, resentful. Some it would say lover and worshiper of money, that's my God. Some it would say workaholic, prideful, untruthful, arrogant. What would yours say? Because whatever it is, it nailed the Lord to the cross. And in another way, though he has washed it away with his blood, guys, he's erased it and written forgiven on it. And you need to hear that. But to continue to engage in it is to experience yourself a kind of crucifixion. Because if you think about it for a minute, just like Jesus literally suffocated on the cross for your sin... Your sin and my sin suffocates us as well. It slowly and surely ebbs our life away, stealing it from us, as it could be, as it should be, to the glory of God, suffocating. As Jesus in love hung naked on a cross, bearing the shame for your sin. What what does our sin do to us? It shames us massively. Even when we're the only one who knows about it, it shames us. And that shame eats away at our conscience and eats away at our souls. As Jesus hung, abandoned by his Father, meaning isolated and alone on the cross, what does our sin do to us? It isolates us. It creates a web of lies around us. It creates the real us and the us that we present to everyone else. It fabricates masks for us that we wear, even in front of our own family. It robs us, honestly, of the ability to truly be loved. Why? Because you can't truly be loved if you're not truly first known. Because you've always got that thing back here going, yeah, but if they knew this, what would they think of me? It drives a wedge between us and other people, and it drives a wedge between us and God. And just as Jesus was held captive, literally pinned to the cross for our sin... Our sin captivates us too. It comes along promising to be our servant and enslaves us, robs us, steals our every freedom. The crucifixion of Jesus not only illustrates what our sin did to him, but it illustrates what it continues to do to us. And for both reasons, honestly, we should hate it, not love it. We should despise it, not cherish it. We should seek by the power of God in community with other believers, honest community, to seek to put it to death. We should not foster it. We should not feed it. We should not coddle it. We should not protect it. We should not hide it. We should not fertilize it, if you will. 
and allow it to grow. John says that Pilate also wrote an inscription and he put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then he says that many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. Again, a populous place. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek so nobody could miss it. Everybody could read it. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, you know, we don't like this very much, so change it, would you? I mean, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And ironically, what he wrote about Jesus was true. Our placards are true as well. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. Four parts, four soldiers. That's where you get that number. And they don't tell us what the parts are, but it was probably his belt, his shoes, his outer garment, and his thing that he would wear over his head. One part for each soldier. And then it says, also his tunic. Now, that's a fifth part. That's his inner garment. But the tunic, John says, was seamless and woven into one piece from top to bottom so that they said to one another, let us not tear it, you know, into four parts, but but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this, John says, was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Now, where's that? That's Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is probably the most detailed description of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in the entire Bible. It was written a thousand years before he was born and 300 years before crucifixion was even invented by the Persians. Stunning! Jesus is not an accident victim. Jesus has not been taken against his will and power. Jesus in love is absorbing the whole of this. And he's being deprived of everything, even his clothes, to do it. He's dispossessed that we might be possessed of his spirit and eternal life. But as I thought about that, I thought, you know, sin takes from us too. You know, it took Jesus' clothes, it took his comfort, it took his life, and a hundred thousand other things. It takes things from us as well. It takes our innocence, it takes our conscience, it takes our joy, it takes our peace. We coddle it, we fertilize it, we protect it, we care for it, we love all over it, while it kills us. So John says, the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas, And Mary Magdalene, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is almost certainly John himself who's writing this account, standing nearby, notwithstanding the fact that he's in his moment of greatest need, bearing the agony of of all that we've discussed, he attends to the practical needs of his mom. See, the cross should call you to love him. It's amazing. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. She's a widow. She needs to be cared for. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, 
that he had out of love borne for us the full weight of God's punishment for every one of our sins, said to fulfill the scripture, this time Psalm 69, he says, I thirst. And that's not a lie. He's been gasping for breath for hours. John says that a jar full of sour wine stood there. And so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch, and then they held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is almost completely done, and you guys, by being good people now, go off and do the rest. Jesus died for the whole of our sin. And in that regard, he left us nothing to do but to turn around overwhelmed with the love of the Savior who did this for us and to give Him our lives and to stop cherishing the things that He Himself gave His life that we might be free of. He said, it is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up His Spirit. No one took that from Him. He offered it. And then just to be sure that we know that he really died, John continues, he says, since it was the day of preparation, that is to say it was Friday, and the Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and in fact it was the Passover. The Jews came to Pilate and they asked that their legs, the legs of Jesus and these two other guys that are crucified on the other side of him, might be broken and that they might be taken away before the end of the day, before the sun set is the idea. Let's get these guys dead and off the cross so they don't defile the Sabbath day because the Roman practice, guys, was basically to just let you die. And again, if it took two or three days, so be it. And then their practice was to leave your body on the cross and let the birds eat you. Nice. But that would cause a major problem in Jerusalem in particular, because under the law of Moses, the body needed to be buried or the land would be desecrated, could not be left hanging on a tree. And so in those instances, they would take an iron mallet and break your legs. And they would do that so that you couldn't push off with your feet anymore. Your arms are too tired. You're not strong enough and you suffocate. You die more quickly. And so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side, probably up under his ribs, with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water a clear sign of physical death, and emblems of the life of Christ by which we are given life and of the washing away at the expense of his life of the horrors of our sin. John says, he who saw it, and he's talking about himself, has borne witness. And his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, and here's why. He's telling the truth so that you may also believe and be forgiven of your sins. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will what? They will look on him 
whom they have pierced. And that's what my challenge was at the beginning. I wanted you to look upon the one who, together with me, (laughs) we have pierced. To gaze at him on the cross and to see unequivocally the single greatest demonstration of his passionate, passionate love for you and of his passionate hatred for sin and why. So that in return, we might love him all the more and begin to agree with him about our sin, that we might hate it as well. So then as I thought about the action step, because, you know, you kind of want to have an action step at the end of a message. Otherwise, people are going, oh, that was interesting. I don't know what to do with it, but it was interesting. Just want to ask you, what does your placard say? It says forgiven because of Christ. Know that. But do you continue to indulge the sins that he died for? What is the one that characterizes and crucifies, in some sense, you most. Because I think the action step is to confess it, to come out with it, to in community with other Christian believers with whom you can be honest by the power of the Spirit of God. Quit denying it, quit feeding it, quit fertilizing it, quit fostering it, quit hiding it, quit cherishing it, and quit allowing it to eat you up as well. And deal with it. So whatever the placard says, I think the action step is to acknowledge it and to go after it. Let's pray. 